Hello, I'm Anna Elliott and this is Blendle Handpicked. If you give me five minutes of your time, I'll give you three stories that stood out above all the rest this week. My first pick today is New York Times tech columnist Brian X. Chen's review of the new iPhones, including the iPhone 11, announced at Apple's keynote speech on September 10th. My reason for picking this article is that it's not just a phone review. Chen explains how Apple's new iPhones have actually made him change his advice on when to upgrade your smartphone handset. He's been writing about tech for more than a decade, and he had a certain formula for reviewing new iPhones. He tested the new features, and if you'd had your handset for more than two years, he'd generally recommend trading up. But things have changed. Based on Chen's testing of Apple's new offerings, even if your phone is two years old, he says you probably shouldn't bother upgrading. This isn't because the new iPhones are particularly disappointing. It's because we're living in the golden age of smartphones where improvements year on year are getting less and less impressive. Chen explains in thorough detail what the differences are between the iPhone 11 and iPhone 10 handsets. So if you're after tech specs, this is still the right piece for you. But he takes care to explain that the changes aren't as seismic as in years past, and he has 10 years of notes to compare them to, so we'd better listen. What I really like about this review is that it ties in with other pieces Chen has published recently, one on how to make your smartphone last longer, and another on the benefits of holding off before you buy new tech. And you can see that he's committed to a new message of resisting tech upgrades in general. This isn't common advice from a tech columnist, and it's definitely caught my attention. This is so much more than a phone review. Dig in for more technical information about the new iPhones, but also for an explanation of why you should definitely upgrade if you've had your handset for five years or more. It's five minutes from last Thursday's New York Times. Next up is a piece from Eve Rodsky in the Wall Street Journal on the gender imbalance in household chores between opposite-sex couples and how to fix it in a way that keeps everyone happy. The premise of this piece is quite surprising at first. Yes, women often feel overwhelmed by the housework they do, but Rodsky says the answer isn't to split it 50-50. Now, that might seem like quite a surprising starting point, especially in a world where women continue to do two-thirds of domestic labour at home, even in two-earner households. But hear her out. Rodsky is a trained lawyer and negotiator, and has been studying the phenomenon for several years. She's interviewed 500 men and women about how they divide responsibilities, as well as experts in the field. So here's her solution. I quote, Instead of setting an unattainable ideal of men doing exactly equal work on the home front, women should ask their partners to completely own the jobs that they do take on. Her research has shown that when work gets only halfway done by one partner and requires input from the other one, communication and marriages break down. The women she interviewed largely said that their satisfaction was less to do with a 50-50 split in domestic work than whether their partners fully conceive, plan and execute a task. The idea is that, in opposite-sex couples, men's ownership over home responsibilities reduces the brain power required by women to remind them to do it in the first place. There's an interesting discussion here over the imbalance in cognitive labour between men and women's spouses. A Harvard Business Review study has shown that the invisible concentration that goes into carrying out tasks is often undervalued by men until they start to do it themselves. And according to Rodsky's research, her solution provides a win-win answer here. 
Women perceive the situation as being fairer when they're tasked with less cognitive labour, and men's mental health improved when they were fully entrusted with their responsibilities. Whether or not this would work for you, it's an interesting, practical angle on a problem that is gaining increasing attention these days. Check out the full five-minute article in Saturday's Wall Street Journal. Last up today, I have a truly inspiring interview from Alex Horgood with the Queer Eye star Jonathan Van Ness in the New York Times, and it's a breathtakingly honest window into Van Ness's dark past. Now, if you've seen the Netflix show Queer Eye, you'll know Van Ness as the self-described cotton candy figure skating queen who bounces into the lives of the people on the makeover show and gives them magnificent haircuts while offering beauty tips like a fairy godmother. His on-screen persona is bubbly and bright, and while the show offers hints of pain in his youth, that's nothing compared to what he was prepared to share with this interviewer. With a memoir coming out this Thursday, he's been mentally preparing for its revelations all summer, and he decided to sit down with the Times to open up about some of the biggest bombshells in the book. He talks about being sexually abused as a child, selling his body in his youth, becoming a sex addict and a drug addict, even going to rehab twice, and finding out he was HIV positive. As Horgood said on Twitter, it's rare for someone in the public eye to be this transparent about these issues, let alone in this political climate. During the interview in a Manhattan diner, fans come up to speak to Van Ness and to share their enthusiasm, often as he speaks with Horgood about the darkest parts of his story. And those moments come as jolting reminders that his bright persona has become a public commodity. The pain of maintaining that character while dealing with demons such as these is made achingly apparent. By the end of the interview, my perception of Van Ness had changed completely. Here is someone who has gone through some of the worst things possible and has overcome them to build the success he has today. But instead of hiding it away, he has chosen to be open and vulnerable about his past. You can read the full six-minute, truly inspiring interview from Saturday's New York Times by clicking that link in the show notes. Thanks for joining me for this week's top stories. Check out the show notes for the links to the articles. And if you want to read more, you can go to blendle.com and subscribe to the Daily Digest newsletter, which we send out at 8am Eastern. If you want to get in touch with your thoughts on the show, you can email me at editorial at blendle.com and you can follow us on Twitter at Blendle. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>